I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21, we're going to look at verses 15 through 22 today. You know, as we sang, He Will Hold Me Fast, I was thinking of a, a video I saw uh, just a week ago of a group, a family in Ukraine gathered around a kitchen table and they were singing that hymn. Now, I want to remind you this morning that we need to continue to pray for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in the faith as many now have fled their homes, fled their country. We need to pray for that nation and pray uh, in a time of great suffering and great peril uh, that God would indeed be glorified and that more people would come to know what it means to sing that song, that, that He will hold us fast, that the gospel would prevail even in the midst of intense suffering in our world. And we pray that today the gospel would prevail here as we come again to this book in the Scripture that we started nearly two years ago, one that is filled with immense suffering. Uh, we come towards the end of Second Samuel now, and as I mentioned uh, last Lord's Day, these last few chapters are uh, simply a, a collection, and an arrangement. These don't really fall in chronological order with the rest of First and Second Samuel. Uh, but the narrator has put these here divinely inspired for a purpose that we might be encouraged. And so last Lord's Day we looked at the first half of chapter 21 where we read about a famine. And now we come to the second half of the chapter where we read about a fight. And it's actually uh, multiple fights, uh, summarized battles that took place between the Israelites, and the Philistines. And so we're going to look to this passage and then trust that God might teach us through it. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as I read for us this history of God's people that's been handed down, divinely inspired, that we might learn from it today. 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 15. This is what God's Word says. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants. And they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbibanab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed the son of Zeruiah, or excuse me, and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there again was war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jerar Origem, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel... Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. 
These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. If you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. And even as we come to passages like this one, which seem to be just a, a chronicle, a summary of events, we trust that there is something here for us to learn. So I do pray you would help us to learn from it, to grow from it. And Lord, to trust in Christ today as we consider your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would imagine that most of us in this room probably have a somewhat similar kitchen layout. You and I probably have uh, cabinets designated for dishes and another cabinet designated for glasses. You probably have a drawer in your kitchen that's designated for silverware and perhaps another drawer designated for cooking utensils. And then for some of us, we have a, a special drawer in our kitchen. One that maybe we open more than any other. And in our house, it's called the junk drawer. It's where you put the scotch tape. It's where you put those miscellaneous items, paper clips, random batteries. It's where you have your collection of Bloomfield Baptist Church Father's Day and Mother's Day pins. It's that drawer that you have that you just put a lot of things in that don't really have another designated space. They don't require their own designated space. It's a, it's a miscellaneous collection. It's not really junk. At least that's what I tell my wife. It just doesn't have another place to go. As we come to the end of 2 Samuel, it can be tempting to look to this passage as if it's some type of junk drawer of 2 Samuel, that these are just a collection of narratives that they don't really fit anywhere else. There's really not a unifying theme in these last few chapters. It doesn't follow a chronological order. It doesn't fall within a place among the other things we've read. And yet, this is certainly no junk drawer in 2 Samuel. These are not throwaway narratives. They're a part of God's inspired word. They're, they're not leftover parts like something we might throw in a box and stick in the garage and think, well, I'll get to that one day and maybe then it'll be useful. No, they're useful for us now. They're part of God's inspired word for us that we might learn from them and grow from them. Now, granted, as I read this passage in preparation for our study, this is slim pickings. <laughs> There's not a lot here. That there's not a lot of narrative that jumps off the page at us. In fact, there's little to no dialogue in here. Just a comment from some of David's men collectively as they go to him and tell him that he no longer needs to go out to battle. That there's a list of names and a list of battles. But, but very little given to us. But as we look to this, I'll remind you again of what Paul writes to the Roman believers in Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And so this too, this list of names and list of battles and list of how many fingers and toes a giant had. Well this is given to us for our encouragement. That we might have hope. 
That by studying this word that we might learn to grow in our trust of God. To grow to be more faithful in our walk with God. To look to God. And to remember that he indeed holds us fast. So how do we do that? Well, I think we begin with a reminder we have in this passage. The first point I put there in your outline. The reminder that God gives rest to the weary. God gives rest to the weary. Now the first half of this passage, it, it reads like a very notable scene, one that Pastor David already reminded us of from 1 Samuel 17. If you've not been with us in our study, or if you know very little about First and Second Samuel, you probably still know about 1 Samuel 17. It's by far the, the most famous chapter of all of First and Second Samuel, perhaps one of the most famous chapters in all of the Old Testament. It's one that people who know little to nothing about the Bible know at least a reference and in recent days I can't count the number of times I've turned on the TV and watched the news and heard a reference to David and Goliath David and Goliath David and Goliath well where do we find the story of David and Goliath it's in 1 Samuel 17 and as you go to 1 Samuel 17 as we heard from it earlier we find there too that there was a war between the Philistines and Israel we find there too that there was a descendant's from the giants, a man named Goliath. Now there's lots of references to giants here. We could spend a great amount of time on that. But as I mentioned to you in 1 Samuel 17, this is likely a reference to the descendants of those non-Israelites who inhabited Canaan. Those that the spies saw and they talked about their great stature. This was a, this was a race of warriors. Large. Dooming to God's people. And Goliath was from them. We read in 1 Samuel 17 that Goliath had a spear with a head that weighed 600 shekels of iron. We find in 1 Samuel 17 that Goliath wanted to kill David. And then we come here to the end of 2 Samuel 21 and we find a very familiar scene. It just seems the names have changed a bit. Here too we find a giant. Here, too, we find one whose spear was weighty. It weighed 300 shells of shekels of bronze. Here, too, we find a giant who wanted to kill David. Similar stories. <coughs> but the narratives are quite different, aren't they? In 1 Samuel 17, you have a picture there of a very young David, fresh from the field, newly anointed as king over Israel in a private ceremony with his family, not publicly serving in that role yet. A faithful David who steps onto the battlefield in the place of all of the Israelites, empowered by God to take on this giant, this mocker of the true God. Now we come to what seems to be a much later point in David's life. We have David now, it would seem, established in his rule over Israel. He is no longer in his youth. In fact, we note here, he grew weary. Not exactly the picture we see in 1 Samuel 17. Now, we can ask the question, why was David weary? It could have been his age. He was older. He was no longer able to do the things he could once do in his youth. He was worn out, perhaps, from years of running from Saul, years of fighting and battles, whatever the cause, his condition was clear. He was weary. Now that word here used in the Hebrew means to become so 
tired that you're ready to faint. And some of you have been there before, where you're just so exhausted, you could literally just fall down right there. And that's the picture we have here of David in 2 Samuel 21. And so, he's not going to be the one, in this case, to take on the giant. He's not going to be the one to go out there, win the battle, but God will and does. He sends to him another, Abishai, who comes to David's aid. He takes his place on the battlefield and he kills this giant, Ishbi Banab. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue quite like, like Goliath, but the battle was won nonetheless. And then, likely, we see Abishai going with a delegation from David's army, perhaps his most trusted leaders, commanders, and counselors, and they go to David and they have a word for him. And the only word, quote, dialogue that we see in this whole passage where they come to David and essentially say that the future of Israel is at stake. You're not going to be the one to take on these battles anymore. We're going to have to fight in your place. You need to lead from a distance, not from the battlefield. It's quite a different scene than 1 Samuel 17. In fact, you'll recall back in 1 Samuel 17 when that happens, where David stands in the place of the people of Israel, he takes on Goliath and slays him, that, that afterwards, as David is leaving, as he's returning to the city, People are writing songs about him. The women are singing songs about his greatness. But now, in 2 Samuel 21, nobody's writing songs about David. They might be writing songs about Abishai, but not about David. But that's okay. David doesn't need another song. David doesn't need another victory lap here. What David needs, according to God's word here, is David needs rest. David is weary. David is exhausted. And God gives him rest. And friends, I think that, in, that perhaps alone in this passage is a significant point for us to consider. That, that God gave David rest. And that God gives us rest today. And it's a rest that we desperately need. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives us this invitation. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, notice the invitation that Jesus offers there. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. That, that phrase heavy laden in the Greek, it's, it's a phrase that would be used of a, of a cargo ship that was so overloaded that it was going to sink. It's a point where there's too much put on someone, where they are overwhelmed and overburdened, where they, they can't move forward because they're so weighted down. But that's the picture Jesus is giving when he offers that invitation. He's saying when, when, when we're at that point, when we are heavy laden, when we are overwhelmed, when we are burdened, when we are weary, he invites us to come to him. To take his yoke upon us. 
Uh, yoke, of course, was a, a wooden bar that allowed two animals to work together more effectively than one could. They would share the load with one another. But of course, when we speak of the yoke of Christ, we're not speaking of a shared load. <laughs> we're speaking of Christ carrying the load. That's why Jesus refers to that load that he carries for us as something that is light and gentle and produces rest for our souls. And so friends, I'll remind you this morning as we come to this passage that just chronicles us through victories and battles over giants that we see here a picture of a weary David. We see here a reminder that God gives rest to the weary. And that's, that's much needed news for us today. Because some of us are, are very weary. We might be weary because we are suffering. We might be weary because it seems our world is falling apart. We might be weary because we want to understand why these things happen, and yet we don't have all the answers. But in these moments, we're called to come to Jesus, to come to His Word, to be reminded of what His Word says. In Romans eight twenty eight, we read this, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now what that passage reminds us is that God has purpose. For, for every moment of rest in our life, for every moment of wrestling in our life, God has purpose for it. He's working through all these things for His good purposes. We might not understand exactly how He's working this side of eternity. Perhaps the most difficult question I receive as a pastor, one that you've received in having conversations about this is, Pastor God, why would God allow this, this to happen? I've asked those questions in my own life as I consider suffering of people I love, people that you love. I've asked those same questions. Why? And we don't always have all the answers to that. Everything... Working for God's good purposes doesn't mean that everything makes perfect sense to us in the moment. But, but it means that one day, friends, it will. One day we'll, we'll see how all the pieces fit together. We, we may never see that this side of eternity, but one day we will. J.C. Ryle said it this way, by affliction, referring to these sufferings, he, God, teaches us many precious lessons which without it we should never learn. By affliction, He shows us our emptiness and weakness and draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections and weans us from the world and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. And we shall thank God for every storm. That doesn't mean that we're there now. But, but what we see in God's Word is that we will be there one day. And so we long for that day and we look to that day as we trust in Christ. We may not have all the answers, but one day we will. And for now, in our burden, in our tired state, in our weariness, in our suffering, 
we're called to go to Christ and to experience what it means to find rest in Him. He doesn't promise us all the answers, but He promises us rest. And that's what we truly need. God gives rest to the weary. Point two, God gives victory to His people. Now we see victory throughout the second half of this passage. But it's no longer really David's victory. It's the Israelites' victory. It's the victory of his people. But, but David's now on the sideline. David's now watching. Others are going out and taking on these giants. We read about three of them. Three more battles with the Philistines. Specifically, three more battles with giants of the Philistines. We're giving very few details. No dialogue. But there are a couple of things I want to note here. First, in verse 19... You may have caught, there's a bit of a problematic detail given in 19. We're told here that El-Hanan, the son of Jarar Origem, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. Now we've spent a great deal of time in our study of 1 Samuel, and alluded to it in 2 Samuel, that it is David who struck down Goliath the Gittite. And so this might jump out to us as problematic. And so we have to reconcile these things. Well, what's this reference to? Well, there's a number of theories, and I won't go into great detail, but I'll just give them to you in summary. A theory, number one, is that El-Hanan was a reference to David. That there are places in the Scripture where someone is referred to by more than one name. Now, we can understand this a bit, because within this room, there are many people who are referred to by more than one name. This was very confusing for me at first. People would refer to someone by a nickname, and I would want, when am I going to meet them? And there they are, because I didn't know that's what their name was. And Gary Foster is Porky. You can ask him why he's called that. It's, everybody's got these little names they're given at some point. Sometimes it's not a nickname. Sometimes it's a, it's a middle name or a first name they don't go by, or it's another person's name that somehow is associated to them, or something they picked up when they were young, and you think it's their name. It's not really their name, but that's what people call them. So we may have an instance of that here in 2 Samuel. This may be a reference to David by another name, but that's a bit problematic because then you have him referred to as the son, not of Jesse, but Jerar Origem, which would mean that now Jesse's referred to as another name. So that, that can be problematic. Another theory is that there's more than one giant from Gath named Goliath. <laughs> Or that perhaps even Goliath is a reference to a giant from Gath, not even a specific name. That's a little problematic because in 1 Samuel 17 it specifically says his name was Goliath. But again, there could have been more than one Goliath. And these two Goliaths could have met their demise, one by the hand of David, one by Elhanan. But one of the things that's helpful to us when we consider what seems to be a contradiction in the Scripture is to look at what other Scripture says about that Scripture. And in the case of First and Second Samuel, we have collaboration when we look to the Chronicles. And in First Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, we read this. And there was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jerar, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Almost an identical verse, but one little detail put in there. That it wasn't Goliath that he struck down, that it was the brother of Goliath that he struck down. And so it could have been that along the way, the inspired word of God written down perfectly, being transcribed that, that a word was left out. The reference to him being the brother of Goliath was left out. Well, we don't know which of these it is. And you may even wonder now, why are we talking about this? 
I asked myself that question as I was writing it. Why are we going to talk about this? And here's my answer. Because we shouldn't skip over things that appear to be contradictions in God's Word. That these are things that people bring up to us and say, well, if this is really true and it's inspired the Word of God, explain this. Well, now you can explain this. Or at least give theories to an explanation of it. The, the main point, of course, is this. Whoever it was that killed and whoever it was that got killed, the killer killed them. God was victorious. That the giant fell again. And not just here. The giant in verse 17, the giant in verse 18, the unnamed giant in verses 20 and 21, who we just know is having extra digits on their hands and feet. An implication of their massive size. And in case you've lost count of all of that, the narrator gives us there in verse 22 this summary. These four were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And you may recall... Back in 1 Samuel 17, just a side note here, that there's a mention in 1 Samuel 17 as David's preparing to go to battle Goliath. He picks up those five stones to battle, uses one of them. I mentioned to you then that we don't know the exact reasons. Perhaps he thought it might take five. But some speculate, now you come to the end of 2 Samuel 21, that David was very aware of these other four giants who seem to all be related, perhaps some speculate were even brothers. And that was David was ready to take on these four relatives, perhaps brothers of Goliath, should they come to avenge their brother's death. Well, he didn't do that. But they would die nonetheless. And the narrator would tell us about their deaths in this summary at the end of Second Samuel chapter 21. And so... How does this thing that has been written down offer us encouragement and hope? And I think it offers it to us simply this way. That the same God who gave David and his men victory over their enemies is the same God who gives us victory today. And make no mistake about it, it is God that gave the victory. Again, so many references in these days to David and Goliath as if David was the one that did it. But David's not the one. And perhaps the reason that God has included this in his word is to remind us that our thoughts of David shouldn't just be that he's the mighty giant slayer. Because I'll remind you, he's on the sidelines here. He's watching and waiting from a distance. Others are fighting the battle, but they win the battle in the same way that he won the battle, by the power of God. God is the giant slayer. Not David or any of these others. And God's still slaying the giants today. And the scripture says the greatest giant that must be slayed is the giant of sin and death. And that's exactly who Jesus slayed on the cross. And that is why we find not just our arrest, but our victory in Jesus. Which is our third and final point of summary in your notes. We find rest and we find victory in Jesus. Now, there can be some confusion as to what that means. And most of you, if you grew up in church, you, you sang about victory in Jesus. 
but there can be some confusion about what that victory is. See, victory in Jesus does not mean that your life and my life will be easy. Victory in Jesus doesn't mean that if, that if we just have enough faith, all of our giants will be destroyed. Again, I'll remind you at the end of 2 Samuel 21 here, we don't have any teaching about David lacking faith, therefore he was sidelined. He's old and he's weary. He can't fight the fight anymore. It's not a matter of his faith. It's a matter of his ability. And God uses others by his own sovereign design to take on the enemies that need to be defeated. God is the victor then and now. And so victory is not a matter of, well, if I just had enough faith and if you just had enough faith, then, then we would see victory in every matter under the sun on this earth that we'd never have sickness and we'd never have poverty and we'd never have turmoil and we'd never have suffering. There are those who teach such things. The Scripture identifies them as false teachers. False prophets. Those we are to be aware of and stay away from teach such things. Because they're not teaching you about the power of God. They're teaching you about the power of positive thinking. What do we see here in 2 Samuel 21? We see the power of God on display. And how do we see the power of God on display in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see it in Christ's suffering and in Christ's death through which we have victory over sin. And it is that victory that we hold to and that we look to because that's that victory that reminds us the final battle has been won. It's that victory that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says this, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I'll remind you that 1 Corinthians 15 does not teach us that if we pray in faith, we'll get a nicer car. It teaches us that if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we repent of our sin, if we put our faith in Him, that the wrath of God that we rightly deserve has fallen on Christ in our place, that we might be resurrected like Him and have a new heaven and a new earth and a paradise where we will spend eternity. And that's a lot better than a new car. Amen? That's the victory that Christ offers. And that's the victory that He gives us. And that victory belongs to those who have put their trust in Christ. 1 John chapter 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And what that reminds us of is this. This morning, this Lord's Day, 
If you have confessed Christ as your Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then the Scripture teaches you have been saved. If you have not done those things, and you do that today, if you confess that Christ is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. The promise of God's Word is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the victory promise we have here, the reminder that death does not have the final word. That this world does not have the final word. That your sufferings and mine, these things don't have the final word. Jesus does. The final word belongs to him. And that word is, come, all who are weary. And he will give you rest. That, that word is confess him as Lord. That word is to trust in him and to look towards and long for the day of his return. When all these sufferings, all these trials, all these battles, all these wars are no more. And so I encourage you today, I believe this passage encourages us today. Find our rest in Him, our victory in Him, to trust in Him. And so we invite you to do that now. If you would stand together as I pray for us and as we respond to God's Word together. Oh, great and sovereign God. We this morning are owed nothing. We are deserving of the due punishment for our sin. But, but you, Lord, have demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, you've promised us in your word that if we will confess Christ as Lord, if we believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so, Father, we come to you today. We, we respond to your word today by asking for you to save us from our sin, from our suffering, from our fruitless pursuits, of the things of this world. We pray as the scripture closes. Come Lord Jesus come. And help our hope. And our trust to rest in you. Lord I pray if there is anyone. Here among us today. Who. Who's yet to trust in Christ. To place their hope in Jesus. I, I pray that through. The powerful work of the Holy Spirit. That you would bring them to repentance today. And I pray, God, for those who have repented and have trusted in Jesus, that, that you would give us a renewed hope. That you would help us in the midst of a world, of a church that is experiencing suffering, that will experience suffering. That you would help us to hope and trust in you. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to respond now to God's word through... Lifting our voices together. That's, that's the invitation that's already been given all over the world today.
those Ukrainian brothers and sisters, many of whom have fled from Ukraine or in other countries are gathering, have gathered today at bus stations and in homes and outside and some in bombed out buildings and they have lifted their voices and worshipped and we join them today by lifting our voices and we worship. We thank God and we praise him for his greatness and goodness. So we're going to respond to God's word by doing that very thing and as we do if If God's leading you to come this morning to confess Christ as Lord, to respond to that gospel offer, it may be you just need someone to pray with you. It may be a number of things. He's leading you to start the process of joining this church family. It may be you're just burdened this morning to pray for the weariness of someone else. Whatever it might be, we invite you to to repent, confess, to pray, to come, to sing during this time of response.